to She Said, She Said. I'm Laura Cox Kaplan. We're going to talk brain health today with my guest, the amazing Dr. Annie Finn. Annie is a board-certified obstetrician-gynecologist turned founder of the Brain Health Kitchen in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. She's doing incredible work around the connection between brain health and what we eat, and especially looking at what we eat at the different stages in our lives. This is a topic we have to focus on before we have cognitive decline. We're going to talk to Annie a little bit about that. We're also going to talk about career and personal evolution and reinvention, something that Annie knows quite a bit about since she traded in her stethoscope for an apron. So with that, Annie, welcome to She Said, She Said. Thank you, Laura. I'm so happy to be here. I'm so happy to have you. Let's start by talking about the Brain Health Kitchen. What is that? Well, Brain Health Kitchen is two things. It's an online community that I developed. So it's a website where people come for information about how to eat better and take care of their brains better. And it's also a cooking school. I launched the Brain Health Kitchen Cooking School in 2017. And it's the only cooking school of its kind that's actually focused um, exclusively on helping people prevent cognitive decline with food and lifestyle. So you come to this from a fairly interesting and maybe a slightly unusual path. You didn't necessarily start in food. No, no, I did not. I've been a lifelong lover of cooking and a home cook since I was a teenager. And it's a passion I pursued throughout my entire life. But I'm a medical doctor. I'm an OBGYN, just like the person you see for your annual exams or your hormonal replacement therapy advice. The person who does hysterectomy is the person who delivers your baby. Um, I practiced OBGYN for 20 years where I live in Jackson, Wyoming. And then I, I did, um, you know, I, I definitely did a bit of a change of life um, career-wise. I, I decided to retire, and I didn't know exactly what I was going to do. But I knew I wanted to do something that was more geared towards prevention, more geared towards helping people eat better and live better to prevent disease long-term. That's really amazing. So when did you have the idea for the Brain Health Kitchen? How did that come about? Well, that all came about around 2015. I retired after 20 years in 2010. Um, I started working as a food writer and wrote for my local newspaper and wrote magazine pieces about food and health and nutrition. I also taught cooking classes at the community school in my, in my community. Um, and around that time, I was looking for a topic for my newspaper column, which ran every two weeks. And I came across one of my medical journals and this is when the MIND diet, the M-I-N-D diet, had been just been published in 2015. And it showed that if you eat a certain way, which is really just a spin-off of the Mediterranean diet, it can reduce your risk of getting Alzheimer's later by as much as 53%. Wow. And I thought this was like, you know, just amazing. Like nobody knows about this. There's this huge body of research about what we eat and how our brains age. So I started doing a deep dive into all that. And then around the same time, that same year, my mother was diagnosed with the earliest form of Alzheimer's, which is called mild cognitive impairment. So I did an even deeper dive into all this literature to see how I could help out my mom. And at some point in that year, I really did have one of those epiphanies people talk about that, you know, I'm a food writer. I had gone back to culinary school. I was teaching cooking classes. I decided that this is what I should be teaching. I should be teaching people how to take care of their brains through my love of food. Yeah. 
So let's, let's sort of dive into the topic of when is it most important to start to focus on this topic? I mean, certainly at the point in which you might be experiencing some kind of symptoms, but my guess is it's really important to start much earlier than that. Maybe give us a sense of how we should be thinking about brain health over the course of our lives. Absolutely. It's such a great um, idea to bring up because we used to think that Alzheimer's just happened when you got older. Like you would have a grandparent with it and you'd say, oh, grandpa was 78 and he got Alzheimer's. You know, isn't that a shame? He just got Alzheimer's. But that's not really how, um, you know, that lead thinkers about the disease see it now. We know that Alzheimer's starts in your brain 20 to 30 years before the memory lapses begin. Wow. So I look at Alzheimer's as a chronic disease. And it's not based on just one thing. It's based on many, many insults to our brain. It could be oxidative stress from pollution. It could be oxidative stress from the foods that we eat. It could be inflammatory substances like having a viral infection that passes the blood-brain barrier. We're finding that there are all of these different um, insults to the brain that occur over decades. So the best time to really start thinking about brain health is you know, at least in your 20s. And someday, I'm sure it will be taught in schools as well to younger, younger adults and children. But in your 20s, 30s, and 40s is when these insults are actually starting to build up the, the harbingers of Alzheimer's, which are amyloid and tau proteins that seem to glom onto the brain and get sticky and, and disrupt the connectivity. Mm -hmm. That happens starting in our 20s and 30s. Wow, that's amazing. So how do we stop it? What should we be doing in our 20s and 30s uh, in order to, 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 to resist that cognitive decline that occurs later? Well, it's, it's um, instead of looking at it as a pessimistic viewpoint, like, oh my gosh, I'm getting Alzheimer's already. You know, I'm only 35 and I'm getting Alzheimer's. Um, I would flip it and say, we have all of these decades to have an impact and how are cognitive functions going to be later in life? You know, what is our life going to be like in our 60s, 70s, and 80s? Are we going to have a high quality of life? Are we going to be physically and mentally active? Will we be able to enjoy our careers then and also our grandchildren and our family? So I like to look at it as what can we do now? And the two most important things that you can do is eat a brain healthy diet and also exercise. So those two are huge. There's other things as well. There's maintaining cognitive reserve, like becoming a, a lifelong learner where you're always trying to teach your brain something new or learn something from a different angle. Um, there's sleep. Sleep is extremely important for Alzheimer's prevention we're finding. Because while we sleep, and especially the deeper phases of sleep, we're actually clearing out amyloid protein from our brain through the cerebral spinal fluid. And stress reduction is another one that is super important. Mm -hmm. um, my focus with Brain Health Kitchen, of course, is on the food, because food is something that you know, we can make a choice in. Um, I want people to know that brain healthy food is actually a really joyful, really um, crave-worthy diet. It's not really a diet at all, but it's, it's a... It's a wonderful way to eat while you take care of your brain. Yeah, really more of a lifestyle. It's more of sort of thinking about food as fuel and, and part of your lifestyle as opposed to this notion of leaving something off the table necessarily, right? Absolutely. I like to think of what you, what you can eat as opposed to what you can't. One of my absolute most dear students ever told me that once she went through my, my cooking class and learned about the link between certain foods and brain health, um, of course, these are like the most delicious foods too. You know, she starts to choose all of her food through the lens of brain health. 
I think that's a, a great way to look at it because I mean, what could be more important than maintaining the integrity and the health of your brain as you get older? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, let's get into some specifics. What should we be eating versus maybe some of the things that we absolutely shouldn't be eating? And some of this, I think people will hear that and say, okay, I know this already. But do they really, and maybe helping them understand the why behind your list, I know you have maybe a list of 10 or 11 things that are really important to focus on. Let's start with some of those like specific things that we should absolutely be eating. Okay, I'll start with the most important ones. And a lot of this data comes from the large body of work that's been done on the Mediterranean diet studies, of which there are dozens of long-term prospective studies looking at dietary patterns of what people eat and whether they get whether they get Alzheimer's later. And the MIND diet, which is the study that gave me my epiphany back in 2015, they do a really good job describing 10 brain healthy food groups. And they're not saying that this is the only thing you should eat, but they're saying if you choose mostly these foods, you're going to be doing pretty well for your brain health and reducing your risk of Alzheimer's by as much as 53%. Wow. So we'll start with the most important of those because they're also the easiest. So in the MIND diet, berries are their own food group. And everyone loves berries, right? Which is, is why I like all berries or blueberries, all berries, raspberries, which berries? Most berries. But if you look at um, berries in terms of their pigments, the blue, black, dark red, and purple berries are the ones that have a pigment called anthocyanin. And anthocyanin is a flavonoid compound, which is a phytonutrient found in foods. And it's what actually helps clean up amyloid plaque in animal studies. Um, in human studies, it has shown that women, especially who eat two servings of berries a week, can show improvements in their memory as they get older. So even just two half cup servings of berries a week can actually have a long-term impact on how your brain ages. Um, I like to eat berries every day if I can. Um, I like them fresh if I can get them. Otherwise, I eat them frozen in a smoothie or in a dessert. Um, but just a half cup of berries a day is something that will keep your brain super healthy as you get older. That sounds pretty easy. Something that easy, right? I'll do, yeah. And most of the studies were done on blueberries and strawberries because they're most available to everyone. My logo for Brain Health Kitchen is actually a blackberry, if you look at it. And I chose that because blackberries actually have the most anthocyanins of any berry that is easily available. So is, are blackberries considered like the super berry or is there really that much difference? It's a, a difference in magnitude, say when compared to a strawberry, about tenfold in terms of the phytonutrients. I mean, strawberries are good for you. There's no doubt about that. So eat a lot of strawberries if you can. Organic, please, because they do harbor pesticides, especially in the stem. Um, but blackberries, like if you just had to choose and you don't want to eat a lot of berries, I would say blackberries and blueberries are probably your best choice. What about others on your, on your list of top foods? Okay, so the, the next group would be leafy green vegetables. So in the MIND diet, leafy green vegetables are their own food group, as opposed to in the Mediterranean diet, which we've probably all seen the Mediterranean diet pyramid, where the grains and leafy greens and vegetables are all the base of the pyramid. Um, in the MIND diet, they took leafy greens out and made them their own food group because there's so much data behind eating a couple of leafy greens a day and how it slows down the aging of your brain. So just one cup of leafy greens raw, or that might be a half cup cooked, actually improves the, the longevity of your brain by 11 years. And that's been shown on, by, with MRI data, looking at people's brains that have eaten a lot of leafy greens in their life and those that have not. Wow. So that's another really simple thing we can do. 
one cup. It's a salad, right? Yeah. One cup of leafy greens a day. And I like people to sort of expand their repertoire of the greens that they eat. And this is where the cooking school comes in. You know, if you always choose romaine lettuce, maybe choose arugula. If you always like butter lettuce, you know, maybe get some different varieties. Mm -hmm. um, because there's so many different phytonutrients in all the different types of greens as well. Mm -hmm. And you want all of those phytonutrients working for you. Yeah. Is there one that you consider to be a super green, just like blackberries are kind of a super berry? Is there a super green? Or is it better, yeah. really better just to have that mixture? I have to say kale. I mean, kale is, it's not only super high in fiber, which is a whole other issue with brain health. A fiber-rich diet is really the type of diet we're talking about when we're talking about brain health um, for lots of different reasons, mostly metabolic health. But kale is so concentrated in folic acid and some of the other phytonutrients that we're talking about here. Yeah, yeah. But yay for kale. Yeah, yay for kale. I know, I'm a big, big fan of kale. <laughs> So Annie, what else is on this list? What, what else should we be focusing on? Okay, so just real quickly, um, vegetables are another food group in the Brain Healthy Diet. Um, and this is like all of the other vegetables that are not leafy greens. Uh, cruciferous vegetables are especially um, brain healthy because they contain sulforaphanes, which are anti-inflammatory compounds. You might have read about those. They're in a lot of the brassicas, like broccoli and cauliflower and Brussels sprouts um, and cabbages. And those have anti-cancer properties, anti-inflammatory properties, and they're also crucial for anti-inflammation in the brain. So I'd say if you love cruciferous vegetables, go for it. Broccoli, cauliflower, all of those things, cabbages. I have a new recipe for a warm cabbage salad on my, on my website that a lot of people are loving. Um, but really all the different vegetables. And you know, nutritionists have been telling us for years that we should eat the rainbow, right? Like, what, what does that even mean? I don't think people have often understood it. Mm -hmm. But if you do shop at the grocery store or the farmer's market based on color, you're going to get a larger variety of these phytonutrients in your diet. Just like the anthocyanins are so high in blackberries and blueberries, you know, there's hundreds and hundreds of these types of phytonutrients. And they're all color pigments in foods. So if you normally get like a yellow onion, choose a red one. If you normally get a, a green cabbage, choose a red cabbage. You know, mixing up in terms of color is, is incredibly important. So you mentioned this concept of inflammation, which I know everyone knows what that means technically. But, mm -hmm. but I'd love for you to dive into that because I, I really think there's a lot of confusion about what that means and how food can be a driver or a deterrent potentially of this idea of inflammation and also how it specifically impacts the brain. Absolutely. So just like chronic inflammation seems to be the root cause of a lot of these complex diseases that are multifactorial, like cardiovascular disease. You know, it's not just having high cholesterol, right? It's, it's exercise, it's genes, it's diet, it's all sorts of things, it's stress. Um, Preterm labor, you know, for much of my career when I was um, taking care of obstetrical patients, we didn't know what caused preterm labor most of the time. It's, it's root cause is chronic inflammation. And now we're finding the same thing with Alzheimer's disease. Wow. So if you, just, if you just think about the food and not the other inflammatory things in our environment like pollution and pesticides that can um, you know, cause inflammation, you know, there are inflammatory substances in foods. And these are mostly the processed foods. These are mostly fried foods. These are mostly foods that have inexpensive and highly processed oils. Mm -hmm. And these are rampant in our, in our food supply. Right. Um, you know, the, the My Diet has 10 brain healthy food groups. It also has five brain unhealthy ones. 
And one of those is fast and fried foods. Um, you know, the oils that are used in fast food restaurants are often reused over and over again. Um, that process of reusing oils and heating up oil creates omega-6 fatty acids. And these omega-6 fatty acids are necessary for, for brain health, but too much of them in relation to omega-3s can really wreak havoc by making the blood vessels inflamed, by making these proteins that we don't want to stick around in our brain, like amyloid and tau, making them more sticky together and creating a cascade of inflammation that ends up in something that looks like Alzheimer's. You're, you're talking about sort of the difference between good oils and bad oils. What are the best ones when we think about you know, cooking in our own kitchen? What are the best oils to use and why? Well, there's so much confusion on this topic and I try to make it really, really simple in my cooking school. Um, olive oil, you knew I was going to say that, right? <laughs> I did. <laughs> olive oil is, a, is one of the brain healthy food groups. And that's based on the Mediterranean diet studies where they use mostly olive oil in their cooking. And sometimes they don't even cook with olive oil. They just pour it on their foods after it's already been cooked. So extra virgin olive oil is what I use for almost all of my cooking. The smoke point of olive oil is not great if you're going to be grilling something or sauteing something at a high heat, like a stir fry or say roasting vegetables in the oven over 400. And for those foods, I use avocado oil. Mm -hmm. which is very high in monounsaturated fatty acids. Um, the oils I choose for brain health are higher in monounsaturated fatty acids and polyunsaturated ones. Um, and they're lower in saturated fats. So we do have studies that show that there's a direct link between the amount of saturated fat in our diet and our risk of getting Alzheimer's disease later. So we want to focus on mono and polyunsaturated fatty acids that come from nature, mm -hmm. mostly from berries. Um, from fruits like olives are actually a fruit it's a they're like um they're like a stone fruit right um avocados are actually a fruit and so these are the oils in nature that are going to be bad for us and then the nut oils as well but there's a huge gamut in terms of quality for nut oils i like pecan oil i like walnut oil i like hazelnut oil these oils are highly perishable so they have to be bought in small quantities and used right away yeah, what about grapeseed oil? I'm seeing that more and more as a, you know, using it as a, as a, as a non-stick alternative to the more processed versions of that. What about something like that? I'm not a fan of grapeseed oil. Um, it's on one of my oils to avoid lists. Really, and why is that? Well, not only is it high in saturated fat, it's also very high in omega-6 fatty acids. And people favor it because it's relatively inexpensive. It has a neutral flavor and a high smoke point. So you can fry with it or saute with it at a high temperature. But you can do that with other oils as well, like avocado oil, even some extra virgin olive oils. Um, so I don't, I don't use grapeseed oil at all. I don't like the inflammatory nature of it. I don't use sunflower oil. I don't use safflower oil. Canola oil I use sometimes. I prefer an organic canola oil. It's, there's a huge variation in canola oils, but you know, 99% of them are, are high in pesticides because they're GMO products from the canola. If you can find an organic product that's not highly refined, um, it has a decent fat profile as well. Yeah, yeah. How about butter? Let's talk about butter. Butter gets a very bad rap. <laughs> butter does get a bad rap. And, and first of all, I will say that I love butter, love <laughs> butter, um, but I don't cook with butter that much anymore in, in my cooking. And really it's based on the data that I've seen. Um, butter is one of the foods to avoid in the five unhealthy brain foods for the mind diet. 
And they were able to, um, to reduce this group of people's Alzheimer's risk by such a great degree, in part because they really took a lot of the saturated fat out of the diet, we replaced it with the monounsaturated ones, like the olive oil we're talking about. So the recommendations for butter are less than a tablespoon a day in the MIND diet. How does it compare if you're cooking something, right? If you're making a cake or cookies or something like that, that many of those recipes, if not most of them, require butter. So what are the substitutions for butter? Or how should you, how should, I mean, and certainly everything in moderation, right? But how should you think about butter as it relates to baking? Well, I've actually spent a lot of my time trying to convert my favorite baking recipes. I love baking. I'm a huge baker. Um, to convert them from using just butter to using a different type of oil that's more brain friendly uh -huh. so that, you know, we can still have, you know, these baked goods that we love and enjoy cookies and cakes. And you can't always translate a recipe that needs butter for, you know, its flakiness, say like a scone or a, a pie crust. It doesn't always translate to olive oil, but many things do. So I've been able to make my cookies with olive oil. My granola uses olive oil. Um, a lot of my cakes use olive oil. And I find that the different flavor profiles of olive oil are really beneficial in the baked goods. Like the combination of olive oil and chocolate is, you know, that sort of a savory sweet play on the flavors. Um, I love a really herby olive oil in my, in my granola recipe. I just really like how it goes with the nuts. Um, if I want a more neutral flavor for baking. I use pecan oil a lot. And I use that for cookies and say pumpkin bread or something of that nature. Yeah. Um, sometimes I mix olive oil and butter. Um, I have a, a mixed berry polenta crisp on my website. Um, in the crisp topping, I was finding it really difficult to make with just olive oil because just coming off, you're like with the wrong texture. So when you mix half butter and half olive oil, and you're not really getting much butter in the finished dish, um, it had that buttery flavor, it had the texture I wanted. The olive oil mixes with the berries really well. So it takes some trial and error in the kitchen. That's that's a big part of my work these days. Yeah, well, it, it's a, it's really interesting, uh, you know, thinking about these types of substitutions. And I should remind everybody that your recipes, I believe, are available on your website. Maybe give them the web address, which I will also include in the show notes for this episode. Oh, absolutely. Many of the, the recipes that I use in my classes are at brainhealthkitchen.com. So it's www.brainhealthkitchen.com. Yeah. I also share recipes on Instagram um, almost weekly in my stories. a newsletter too that people can sign up for your newsletter, which is great. Yes, and I write a newsletter directly to my readers about once a month. And I highlight the, the, what's new in the Alzheimer's research, especially as it pertains to women. I, sometimes I give some recipes that I'm working on and I highlight what's new on the website. Yeah, sort of pivoting just a little bit. We're heading into summer, beginning to, and I know you have very strong views about grilling and do's and don'ts as it relates to brain health and grilled food. Give us some tips and suggestions about how we can make our, our grilling and our barbecuing a little bit healthier and what we should be avoiding, frankly. Yes. Well, first off, I love, I love grilling, and I was sad to think that I had to give it up because of my brain-healthy lifestyle and the things that I've read about the things that happen when you grill foods and how inflammatory they actually become. Um, but I found ways around it, and so I grill routinely, and I think everyone else can too, and it can be part of your brain-healthy lifestyle as well. Um, one, this brings up a whole issue of something called AGEs, or Advanced Glycation End Products. So we take a protein say a piece of chicken, and then you put a sugary substance on top of it, say a barbecue sauce, and then you apply high heat, 
you know, it gets those grill marks that, that Americans love so much, but also creates a substance called AGEs, which are inflammatory components that really just tear through our nervous system and our, and our vascular system and cause oxidative stress. And AGEs accumulate in the brain cells of, of um, persons with Alzheimer's disease. And so they're bad for brain cells. They, call early, they cause early cell death. So just like we learned years ago that, you know, when you grill a steak, all that black char in the grill marks actually is carcinogenic to some degree. Um, it's also bad for your brain. So I grill, but I don't grill over high heat. I try not to get grill marks on anything. Um, I favor indirect heat and low heat for most of my grilling. That means sometimes just having a hot spot on your grill on one side and then a, and then a lower spot so that you get indirect heat from the hot side of your grill. It also can mean using a grill basket, which is a barrier for the food um, between the heat. Um, it's also really important to keep your grill really clean because mm. you know that char on your on your, the grates of your grill, if you don't clean it off, I mean, it's AGEs. When that gets on your food, yeah. then you're consuming that. Um, that seems like one of the simplest things that you can do is keep the grill clean. Keep the grill clean, exactly. And I actually even invested in one of those grills that um, do much better at a lower temperature. They use wood pellets mm -hmm. and they take longer to heat up. But because of that, you can grill things and smoke things. Um, and smoking is actually a brain healthy cooking technique as well. But you can actually um, grill at a much lower temperature, say, you know, under 350. And so I use my, you know, it's my Traeger grill. There's other brands too. But I use that and I grill pretty much everything at a low temp. Yeah. Um, so I know teaching is a big part of what you do now. Maybe talk to us a little bit about why that's an important component of what you're doing. Yeah, well, teaching, I, mean, I, I look at my, the teaching, uh, especially the information about brain health and food, as my students become brain health ambassadors. Most of my students, um, it's a wide range of people that come to my cooking school, and it's not just women, it's probably equally as many men as women. Wow. But a lot of them have been touched by Alzheimer's disease in some way. Maybe they have a parent with it like I do, or they had a spouse with it, or they were a caregiver. Um, and they really are motivated to know what they can do to prevent this devastating disease. And so I look at each of my students as a brain health ambassador. And, and, you know, you've, you've read the data that like each person has probably at least a sphere of a thousand other people they can influence. Um, that's what I'm relying on. So I want people to learn, you know, the techniques for cooking, the foods to choose from, the foods to stay away from, which means you can, doesn't mean you can't have butter, you know, if you love it, or you can't have a fried food if you love it sometimes. It's more like eat more of this and less of that approach, because you still want to enjoy your food, right? Um, but I want people to know that, internalize it, and then go back out into their friends and family and help them live a brain-healthy life, too. Yeah. This notion of impact is something that we talk about a lot on this podcast and how the women that I talk to, how they think about the impact that they're having on others. If you had to kind of encapsulate that, what would you say? It's hard to say. You know, I'm, um, I was born in 1964, and so I'm, I'm the youngest of all the baby boomers. And so I sort of look at what I'm doing as, like, I'm the little sister of all these baby boomers above me. And all these baby boomers are heading into age groups that are high risk for Alzheimer's disease. So I guess my impact is just one from, like, I'm one of you. I'm a baby boomer, too. I'm also getting older and getting into these age risk groups. You know, I've found an easy way to do it. I want you to access that as well. 
And I have found a way to do it without giving up the enjoyment of cooking or food at all. Um, so my impact is part of it is by example, I would say, and part of it is by getting people hooked on the food because when someone has a delicious meal or makes a recipe at home and it's not difficult and it's just everyone loves it in the family, then they start to get it that, wow, this is good for me, but this is, this is good for you food, not like it used to be years ago. You know, there's really, um, really getting into an era where healthy food is, is just so incredibly delicious and it's going to be the type of food that we all should be eating. So I'm just trying to have an impact on hooking people in with the food and the science and then just following all these wonderful aging cohorts of people as we all get old together. Yeah, and really helping people live much healthier lives, better lives, frankly, uh, which is amazing. Um, I'd love for you to talk maybe for a minute, um, given your, your practice, your OBGYN practice, and your focus, especially on, on sort of the later years of your practice around menopause and perimenopause in particular, and maybe the connection between food health and what you saw from the standpoint of symptoms. Um, I know there is not a lot of research, as you and I talked about before we started this conversation, but I'd love your perspective on maybe how women should be thinking about that connection between symptoms and food. Absolutely. Um, I specialize in menopausal medicine my last eight years of practice. I had given up delivering babies and was really focused on menopausal medicine. So I spent much of my time listening to people going through menopause, helping them go through menopause. And that's really then that my interest in brain health was sparked because invariably women would come in and they might be complaining of hot flashes, number one, but number two was always brain fog. And we didn't call it that back then. There wasn't really a word for brain fog. But what people would say to me is, Annie, I think I'm getting early Alzheimer's. <laughs> remember this, I can't remember that. And it was the women with the worst menopausal symptoms that had the worst cognitive symptoms as they went through menopause. So this was about 10 years ago. We didn't know what we know now about women's brains and menopause. It's a hot area of research, which is great. We're starting to learn more. But the hormonal fluctuations that actually happen during menopause change the way your brain metabolizes glucose. And glucose is the primary form of energy in the brain. Um, once someone develops Alzheimer's, they can no longer take in glucose in their brain. They have to rely on fats for their primary source of fuel. So there's something in this glucose metabolism that our hormones really disrupt. Um, and it may be temporary, as in the perimenopause, or it may be longer lasting. But a very bad menopausal experience is thought to maybe accelerate cognitive decline in some women. Hmm. So there's been a lot of study in uh, the role of hormone therapy. You know, can we ameliorate this effect of hormonal fluctuations on the brain and increase Alzheimer's risk in women? with hormone therapy and a landmark study came out earlier in 2019 about this. that showed that hormone therapy actually can reduce your risk of Alzheimer's disease later in life mm. if taken within five years of menopause. Um, are, can certain foods do this as well? Um, they haven't been specifically studied in the menopausal population. So I'd love to say I've got some data to show you that says, you know, your berries and your leafy greens and your olive oil is not gonna help you get through menopause but will reduce your Alzheimer's risk. Um, we know it reduces Alzheimer's risk. Anecdotally, the women that I took care of in all those years of menopausal practice that ate more of a Mediterranean diet, they had less symptoms and problems from menopause. That I can say for sure. They also were exercisers as well, which I think is extremely important. 
Yeah, no, that's a, that's a whole nother component of this healthy lifestyle um, that's really important for brain health, right? Is that yeah. staying active? Absolutely, because um, if you think about um, the different causes of dementia, Alzheimer's is the one we talk about a lot. It's what most of the studies are done on. But Alzheimer's is actually 70% of, de of dementia. Vascular dementia is another huge category, as much as 20 to 30%. Vascular dementia comes from having unhealthy blood vessels. Um. So women already know what they can do to reduce Alzheimer's to a large degree, and that's staying healthy cardiovascularly. Mm -hmm. All the things that doctors have been saying for years about you know, staying heart healthy, like having a, a, a healthy cholesterol profile, um, exercising, reducing stress, all of those things very much pertain to Alzheimer's risk reduction as well. It's really fascinating. And there's just so many, so, so much that we're learning. All of this feels like it's new information that's really been developed over the last like few decades, right? Absolutely. There's so much new information coming out, especially in the food world, which is exciting for me because it gives me more things to offer people. But we still don't know why women are, are more vulnerable to Alzheimer's than men. I mean, women suffer from Alzheimer's two thirds more than men. And, and that's looking at populations because women tend to live longer. It's not just looking at sort of the overall population of aging people. It's women in particular that are a percentage of that population, correct? We well, used to think it was because women lived longer than men, but that gap is actually closed quite a bit in modern times. Um, so that's main, it's not, not really as accurate as it used to be because men are getting healthier too, especially they're less likely to succumb to cardiovascular events at midlife. That was happening more 20 years ago. So yes, women do live a little bit longer than men, um, but that's not the reason that women are getting more Alzheimer's. And so this also is a hot area of research, like the menopause data, like looking at reproductive health and estrogen exposure over time. Also, like there is a genetic risk gene called APOE4 that a lot of people are familiar with. And women that have APOE4 are more likely to get Alzheimer's than men who have APOE4. So there's something about having a genetic susceptibility in addition to being a woman that sets women up for a higher risk. It's a risk gene. It's, it's, not, it's not a strong dominant gene that says you're going to get it for sure, but it increases the risk. And can um, it's very common in the, in the general population. And is that something that through genetic testing, you know that you're susceptible to that? You can get it tested. And that's a very uh, controversial topic. And people should definitely talk to their physicians about that, whether or not they should get the ApoE4 gene tested or not and do it through a reliable lab, not just 23ME or something like that. We've talked a little bit about um, your own career evolution. Uh, we've touched on this a couple of times. Um, you described yourself as retiring from the medical profession, and I was curious as to sort of your thoughts on the word. I, I kind of find it repellent, <laughs> and especially for a person like you, who's the, she's, you're the furthest thing from being quote-unquote retired because you are embarking and embracing this this new career and this, this new passion of yours. Maybe give us some thoughts on how people should think about this notion, this awful word, retirement and retiring. Oh, yes. I, I also really dislike that word. And I, I tell a lot of my students, you can retire, but never retire your brain. Right. That's the most important <laughs> thing. And because we are all living longer, you know, we are living many different phases of our careers. 
Um, I had one phase as a physician, now I have another phase as a culinary educator and author. Um, and many people can do the same things because, you know, as we get old, we have so much to offer based on the experiences we had in our earlier careers. And that might look like something different than what we focused on earlier. I, I really believe it's important if you give up your, your primary um, profession, whatever that may be, for me it was medicine, always be learning new things. It, it doesn't have to be a big deal career. It can be a, a vocation as well. But if you're using your brain in novel ways, uh, you're building neuroplasticity. And that's one of the things that will protect your brain by giving you all these different neural connections and protect your memories, uh, make you sharper, make you enjoy life more as you get older as well. Yeah, absolutely. I know we didn't cover all of the items on your top 10 list. If you had to pick maybe a couple more that people should really be focused on, what would those be? And I can include the others in the show notes for this episode. There's just so much that we can talk about. It's hard to, hard to narrow it down. I, I, I will point your, your listeners to a couple articles that are easy to find on my website. They're right on the homepage. One is goes over the 10 brain healthy food groups and also how much of each of those to eat in the course of a week. Like I said, it's a eat more of this, less of that approach. It's not a very prescriptive diet. Um, but there are some things on that list that might be surprising, like whole grains. A lot of people have um, thought that eating grains or grain rich foods are associated with Alzheimer's. It's actually the opposite. What researchers found was that if you eat three servings of whole grains a day, it actually reduces your risk of Alzheimer's. Um, so I think that's important to know. You don't have to eat grains to be brain healthy, but if you enjoy your oatmeal, if you enjoy other types of whole grains, like good types of rice, um, these are really important things to get into your diet because of the fiber issue. The more fiber in our diet, the less likely we are to absorb the sugars from our foods. And a high sugar diet is definitely associated with Alzheimer's disease as well. Um, so I would point you to that one article about the, the foods to fend off Alzheimer's and also the five food groups to avoid. And there's no, nothing surprising here. It's red meat, it's butter, it's cheese, sadly. Um, you can still enjoy cheese, but I would go for the high quality, lower fat types of cheeses like Parmesan and Pecorino and feta. Um, I love those types of cheeses in my foods. Um, the fast and the fried foods, and then the pastries and sweets. And it gives you recommendations for enjoying sweets in, in a way that can be part of your brain healthy lifestyle. Yeah. Now I heard you talk about a really fantastic, and I think this is on your website too. It's a really fantastic brownie recipe that you've worked to continue to tweak it so that you're, you've made it as healthy as possible. It's still a brownie, but it's as healthy as possible. Maybe describe some of the things that are in that and we'll put the link on the, in the show notes as well. Oh yes. I love brownies. I would never want to give them up. So, um, Primarily because cacao or cocoa powder is, is rich in flavanols, which is proven to be a brain healthy nutrient in your foods. And who doesn't love chocolate, right? I have met a few people. Um, but when reworking my favorite brownie recipe, what I did was I used olive oil instead of butter. So I shifted the fat profile towards monounsaturated, less saturated. Um, I used applesauce instead of some of the sugar because it adds fiber and sweetness without giving it you know, the sugar that's gonna jack up your insulin. Um, I also added a tahini swirl on top because tahini um, is basically just a sesame paste that's like peanut butter or almond butter, but it's teeming with 
Well, unfortunately, we lost Annie before we were quite finished. Her internet went down in Jackson Hole, but it was great spending the time with her. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and got as much out of it as I did. Um, it's an incredibly important topic, brain health, but so is this notion of personal evolution and reinvention. It's a topic that I really love talking about, and I hope that you love hearing about it as well. As always, I am grateful for the time that you, our listeners and our viewers spend with us. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts and feedback. So send me an email at laura at lauracoxkaplan.net or you can contact me through the website or through our various social media platforms. As always, I hope that you're taking good care of yourself, that you're safe and that you're well. I'll see you next time.